The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. We're in the book of Lamentations. So turn with me there in your Bibles. Not an easy read. Five laments, each one standing on its own, with its own structure, and you hear the desperate, deep, deep cry of someone who is mourning deeply. And, and I, for one, am, am encouraged that books like Lamentations show up in our Bible because it reminds me that God isn't pushing aside reality. We lament, we grieve, and sometimes those laments are due to our own problem. So the lament is a lament of repentance, a a lament of desperation, because what we're experiencing is merely the harvest of bad, badly sown seed, where we have sinned and we're experiencing consequences. And even in that context where there is real repentance, there's real mercy. We have a God who is faithful to meet us that way. And, and what we hear in Lamentations is the cry of those who are living with God seeming very far away. The cry of the main narrator and then Zion, Jerusalem, personified as a city, she speaks. And then the individuals in that city also give voice to their cry and their pain. And it's all directed in one one place to God. Lamentations. Well, that's funny. Lament 2 disappeared. I don't know why. It's in my Bible, though. Um, So... Lament 1, Jerusalem's sorrow. Lament 2, God's punishment. Lament 3, Jeremiah's hope. Lament 4, Jerusalem's siege. Lament 5, Jeremiah's plea. There are three voices that we're going to hear in this book. The narrator is the most common one. He shows up in each lament. So much like in the Psalms, we often, when when we say open up a hymn book, we won't say turn to chapter whatever. We'll say turn to hymn 32. Well, in the Psalter, we do the same thing. We say, turn to Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 119. Here, we would say, not just turn to chapter 4, we would say, turn to Lament 4. It's a mini songbook declaring mournful expressions of the heart. Three voices, the narrator, And Zion. So Jerusalem takes on a voice. As the city herself, she talks. And then all the people of that city take up voices. One thing that you might not know, because in Lamentations, at least in my ESV, they didn't mark this. But if you were to open up to Psalm 119, you see something that's written into the text for us. The ESV translators just helped us out, and they said, this is an alphabetic acrostic. So in Psalm 119, there are eight lines, eight lines times 22. 
And each grouping of eight lines begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it just walks through the entire Hebrew alphabet. All of Lamentations is driven, the structure is driven by the alphabet. So if you look at Lamentations 1, what you see is 22 verses. Each verse starts, has three lines, each verse has three lines, and the first of those lines begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with Aleph, then it goes to Beit, and then Gimel, and then Dalit, and then Hey, Vav, Zion, all the way to the end of Tav. So 22 lines, three lines each, and the first line is the one that includes the Hebrew letter. It takes work to make a poem like that. Then you go to Lament 2, and it's structured exactly the same way. There's 22 verses. Each stanza of the... Sorry... Each of the 12 stanzas, 22 stanzas, 22 verses, each of the 12, 22 stanzas has three lines, and it's the first line that begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession. Lament 3, however, has 22 stanzas, three lines in each stanza, but each of those three lines begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So rather than just being Aleph and then two more lines, it goes Aleph, 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 Beit, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. And so in our ESV, rather than giving us 22 distinct stanzas, representing only the first of the lines in each of the stanzas, it gave us 66 verses, just highlighting the fact that there are 60, in 66 times we Walk through the Hebrew alphabet, three with the first letter, three with the second letter, three with the third letter, three with the fourth. And so it's broken up, the paragraph divisions in my ESV represent that. In Lament 4, 22 stanzas, but there's only two lines per stanza, and it's only the first line that has the Hebrew letter. And then in Lament 5, There's only single lines, there's only 22 of them, and there's no use of the alphabetic acrostic. But there's 22 letters, and there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 lines, 22 letters. So all of the, each of the five laments are in some way controlled by the alphabetic acrostic. So as we journey to ask, so what, let's pray. Father, you give us lamentations to know that lament is real. That lament is even okay. That we grieve sometimes and that you're our only answer. And sometimes that grief is due to divine discipline. I ask that you'd meet us today. Help us, wherever we're at, to turn our eyes to the curse overcomer. I thank you that you have worked in Jesus. Amen. We see different acrostics in our Bible. Psalm 34, for example, just begins to unpack the psalmist's undivided allegiance to the Lord. 22 lines each time unpacking 
a different expression of this psalmist's heart wholeheartedly. He's pulling on every letter of the alphabet to say, I love you. Psalm 119, the most well-known acrostic. It's all meditating on the psalmist's love for the law of God. That God's law is not burdened to me. That I can actually have clarity from him. How I can stay as close as possible to him is a gift. I don't want to turn to the right. I don't want to turn to the left. I want to be right with him. And the psalmist is saying, what a gift God has granted in his law. In fact, I'm going to pull every letter of the alphabet to explain it. To declare how beautiful the law of God is. Psalm 145, just before we get into the final five doxologies, praise psalms at the end of the Psalter, Psalm 145 just unpacks the beautiful name of God, just unpacks His character and celebrates it. Proverbs 31, those 22 verses from 10 to 31 are set up as an acrostic, and Each line magnifies the beauty of a wife of noble character. A woman who has, over her lifetime, been saturated with wisdom in ever-increasing fashion so that this man can stand at the end of his life and declare how beautiful his girl is. How he's seen evidences of God's grace throughout her life and he pulls on every letter of the alphabet to magnify it. So now we come to Lamentations and the use of the acrostic suggests to me that he's unpacking for us, because he's using this acrostic, he's wanting us to feel something. To feel complete lamentation. To feel the absolute depth of his pain. He pulls on every letter of the alphabet in order to express his brokenness. But intriguing that it's in Lament 3 that only the narrator talks... And here we have the most complete uh, acrostic use. 22 stanzas, each of the three lines in the stanza all beginning with a, very, with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's in this context where hope burns the brightest in the midst of the lament. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. This morning... There is fresh mercy for all that you would need today. And often we wake up having no idea how much we're going to need that mercy. It's blood-bought, and God never sleeps. He is our helper who never slumbers. He's up all our night readying the mercy that we will need when our eyes open and we get off our beds. It's all there for us. Mercy at dawn, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. As we look at laments, this is a little refresher. When we were in the Psalter, we looked at this. Laments follow a pattern. So, poetry takes different forms. And and there's a sense of when we hear a pattern that aligns with dirge, it awakens something. Hebrew has a way, it appears, just looking at the various laments. We can see when people are crying out in pain in the Bible. And so what scholars have done is just looked at, is there anything common in their structure? So there appears to be a lament structure, or this is how they marked a minor key. And so I remember it by the acronym 
app trap. So we have an address. Oh, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I am crying out to you. You help me. The petition is made. Hear me. I'm in deep trouble and I need you to intrude into my space and time right now. You feel distant. I need you to be near. The trouble is described. What's going on? God, right now I'm, in a, I'm struggling in this relationship. I've got to make a tough phone call this afternoon. I'm without work. I've got a brother who's on his deathbed. I'm crying out to you, God. I'm letting you know the deep pains of my heart. And we just lay out the trouble to God. We give the reason why we think God should answer. Because you are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You have forgiven thousands in the past. And I'm asking you to do it one more time for me. Help me. Help this person I love. Because you're that kind of a God. Assurance declared, God, I trust in you. You alone are my hope. You alone are my help. And you are a God who have promised mercies at dawn. And therefore, as I put my head on the pillow tonight, carrying all these worries, I'm just casting them over to you. I'm trusting that you'll help me rest and that you will give me what I need when I wake up. I'm trusting in your promises. And then, praise. God, when you come and when you answer, as sure as I know that you will, even if it's not exactly how I understand it or how much how I want it, I trust that you will do what is best. When you answer, I will praise you. Here's Lament 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. God's the one who is addressed. Look and see our disgrace. Renew our days of old. That's the petition. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers. We've become orphans. Our hearts have become sick. There's the declaration of what the trouble is. Why do you forget us forever? A complaint is thrown out. That's not part of... It's not always there. And so it's not part of the app trap structure. But he's just laying out his heart before God. Giving honest expression of what's there. Then God, why should I... Why, why do I think you should answer? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. God, I trust that you will answer because I'm confident that you're not against us unless you really are against us. If you don't answer, it's going to seem as though you're distant, yet you've made promises to me. And you're actually giving God rationale for why you think He should be on your side. But you, O Lord, reign forever. That's the absolute confidence we have when we enter the mission field, when we go into the hard place at work, when we go to make, up, make that tough phone call, when we enter into the hospital room. Perhaps for the last time. Our God reigns. And that's where all of our hope all of our help, all of our confidence for a better tomorrow, all of it comes on the basis of that statement of assurance. Even though I can't understand why you're making this world like you are, you alone are supreme. I am small, you are big, and I will trust you.
The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their music. This is a a wooden harp from the days of David. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So what I want to do is simply walk through this book now and try to summarize the message Try to get our hands around the the weighty parts. And we're just going to walk over and over again through laments 1 through 5 and try to get our hands around it. As we do, I want you to keep your ear out for the three different voices. Sometimes the narrator will be talking, but all of a sudden it will give rise to the city talking. As if the city is a person. Or sometimes the voice of the people will give expression and we'll see that shift take place. One of the clearest teachings from this book is that the reason the lament is coming about is because Israel, specifically Judah, has experienced the curse of God. A curse of God due to their sin. God is just. And the voices in this book believe that God is just in what He has done. That this is not something that has caught them off guard. Rather, they have sinned and He is simply being faithful If you run from God, you run away from life. And the only thing away from life is death. That's what's happened to them and they recognize they're at fault. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. For her children have gone away captives before the foe. Babylon has overcome Jerusalem and now any survivors have been taken away except for the poorest of the poor like Jeremiah who's left in the land. All the rest have been taken captive to the north. The Lord is in the right for I have rebelled. Hear that switch? Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. He's talking about the city. The narrator is. But all of a sudden the city itself takes voice. I, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against His word. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious in the street. The sword bereaves in the house. It is like death. We've transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. So in lament one, it's I. I have done something. Lament three, now the people are talking the people of the city, and they say, we. So, when the narrator's talking, the city is her. When the city talks, she's saying, I, and now the people in the city take on the voice of we. We have transgressed, and we have rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. Lament 4. 6 and 13, for the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. The very leaders who were supposed to be guiding them in godliness turned from God and it led everyone else astray. It was because our leaders were bad who shed in the midst of her 
the blood of the righteous. Lament 5, 7 and 16. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Next truth. Not only has God justly judged them for their sin, He delivered the judgment in His anger. He was aroused to fury in the text goes out of its way to let us know that when God judged, He was angry. It is nothing to you, all of you who pass by. Is it nothing to you? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. Lament 2, 1 and 2. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven the earth, the splendor of Israel. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. Come, come terror, overcome Jerusalem. He did it on the day... Of his anger, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy has destroyed. Hear the lament of a mother. My son is gone. You have wrapped yourself with anger and you pursued us, killing without pity. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger And he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. I think of Romans 1. They did not acknowledge God or give thanks to God. Therefore, he gave them over. He just gives them over to all of their sinfulness, their debased mind, their ugliness. He just pours wrath out in his curses of judgment. Not only did he deliver the judgment in his anger, he did it in exact accordance with his word. If they had listened to the prophets who were merely preaching the Bible, they would have recalled Moses' voice that said, if you love the Lord with all, if you stick close to him and follow his ways, you'll just enjoy the blessing that comes by being near your God. But if you turn and run, Not living like a son who images the glory of his father, but living like a rebel who goes his own way. Then you'll only know death, because only death is what comes away from God. God acted in accordance with his word. Lament 1.21 They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced Now let them be as I am. What's come is only what you promised would come when we rebel against you. The Lord has done what He purposed. He's carried out His word which He commanded long ago. Which He commanded long ago in Leviticus 26, in Deuteronomy 28. If you do not obey my voice, but go in a way contrary to what I direct Curses will come upon you. Lack of provision, lack of protection. That's what's happened to Judah. He's done what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. 
Lament 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Lamentations will not let us have a small view of our God. The good and the bad are both underneath His sovereign oversight. Satan is not equal in power. He is a dog on a leash underneath the ultimate supreme being. And God, in this instance, declared an instrument to be raised up who would bring forth His cursed judgment upon rebel Judah. Now what does this do for us? Unless you're a Jew, the Gentiles are not part of this curse. This was a curse brought on Judah and on Israel for rejecting the Mosaic Covenant, which you and I are not underneath. But their failure simply compounds our guilt. How does that work? Because Adam, in Adam, uh, the representative of all humanity, broad base, that's where all of us fall. We're all guilty in Adam, and God sets up Israel as the answer for this global problem. Israel will be the solution to the global problem. But Israel gets a law, God discloses Himself and His will to them, and they fail to honor God. They fail to keep the law. They fail to follow. And then the curse comes on them. They're the only means of life. And if they end up in curse, then we are doubly cursed, because our only help, our only solution has failed. If they, having so much privilege in getting the law, fail, then all of our mouths are stopped and all of us are held doubly accountable before our God. That's what Paul says here in Romans 3. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those like the Jews who are under the law. It was given to them. They were born, like Jesus, under the law. In the fullness of time, God has sent His Son, born of a woman, born... Under the law. That is, he was born as a Jew by nature. That's not how I was born. Whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth, that's all of us in this room, might be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So if our only answer is Israel, through them the world is supposed to be blessed, and they can't meet their calling. If they're our only help and they end up in curse, then their curse is also our curse. It just exacerbates our separation from God because the one people who are supposed to be the solution end up in a problem. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what it did for Israel and that's what it does for us. So if Israel can't make it by means of the law, who are we to think we can make it apart from the law? Or apart from the law, sure. How can we do that? All of us then are ultimately dependent on the only law keeper, Jesus. Our hope rests only in Christ who bears the curse for all who believe. What the lament 
Jeremiah, I think, most likely, Jeremiah is crying out from the depth of his soul in light of the curse. But the curse that fell on Jerusalem is only a picture of the global problem. And Jesus comes in the fullness of time to fix Judah and Israel's curse problem. And in fixing their curse problem, he's opening up the door for all of us to believe as well. Because he, Israel was the only solution to the whole world's problem. Now Jesus becomes the solution for Israel and in turn becomes the solution for everyone else. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might not only reach the Jews, but might pour forth all the way to the Gentiles. Not only was God's curse justified, the curse that He brings is horrible. We can't jump over these curses. They are heavy. And every one of them testifies to how serious God takes sin. These are not blessings. These are curses. Let's look at some of them. Lament 2, 11 and 12. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets. They don't have enough food. And they're dying. They cry to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. That is not the way it's supposed to be. It is curse. Chapter 2, verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb and children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? Chapter 4, verse 10. The hands of a compassionate woman have boiled their own children. They became their own food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Babylon surrounds the city. They can't get out. They're stuck in the city for days and weeks upon weeks. And where do they go? They don't have any place to go. I need to sustain myself. And it's the mother who actually boils her fetus or boils her infant and eats the child. And we're supposed to be ripped up in our, inside of us. This is how bad curse is. When God gives people over, this is the ultimate extreme when a mother eats her own baby. It's horrific and we're supposed to say, is there no answer to this? Is there no way out of this? Chapter 2, verse 22, You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. On the, on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Slaughter. This is a hard one. 
Chapter 3, verse 8, Though I call and cry for help to you, O Lord, He shuts out my prayer. A curse. When God stops listening to my plea, that's a curse. Sin is serious. And if we pursue emptiness, ultimately, we will become absolutely empty. Beyond rescue. Lament 4, verse 5. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Everything's been taken away. Lament 4, 7 and 8. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Famine, heat, curse. Lament 5, verse 11. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Objectification of women is a curse. When we see it as if we're in Genesis 3 world, we're supposed to say, God, how do I get back into Genesis 2? How do I get back into Genesis 1? To display you as holy rather than demean that holiness. Desecrating, acting like you're common and can simply be set aside. How do I get back into a world that is right? Your fury is too intense. What I am seeing play out around me is horrific, God. Get us out of here. Save us from this curse. It's not outside God's authority. He's the one who's bringing covenant curse. And it looks horrific. Lament 5, verse 12. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Absolute humiliation. And finally, 5.13. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. Boys stagger under the loads of wood. Forced labor. Can you get a sense for why Jeremiah or the lamenter would just cry out, why do you forget us? Forever. Why do you forsake us for so many days? But he makes the right petition. Restore us, O Lord, to yourself. That's what we need. You are the only answer for this kind of pain. This brokenness is beyond what I could have ever anticipated. I was living in sin, acting like sin was not serious. All of a sudden, I'm feeling the weight of how serious sin is. Get me out. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore us to you, O Lord. In accordance with His Word, God says, not only will He punish Judah, but He will punish all the enemies that served as instruments of their judgment. 
So he raises up Babylon to come in and overcome Judah. And then he says, I'll go curse Babylon because of the hatred that they've shown my people. This is absolute sovereignty. Nothing outside of his control. And always judging and holding people responsible for true sin and hatred in their soul. God's sovereignty is not separate from human responsibility. He judged Israel for their sin. And then He will judge Babylon and Assyria before them for their sin. Even though they were the very agents by which He brought judgment on His people. God had said, I will bless those who bless you, but the one who dishonors you I will curse. Thus the Lord says, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the, of the wine of wrath, the cup of wrath, take it from my hand and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. All the nations that actually served as the agents of judgment against Israel will in turn receive God's judgment. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad, O God, that you have done it. You've brought the day that you announced to us. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me, their lips and the thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Before they, before, behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them and you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also shall the cup of wrath pass. You shall be drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. Simply to say, I'm an agent in the hand of God, does not justify sin. And God will always punish sin. This is a book that says God is holy and He will always address sin. No one will escape. I'm going to jump over this text. But if inside you're wrestling deeply with how can God hold responsible those whom He actually moves hardening those whom He will and bestowing mercy on whom He will. Paul in Romans 9, 17-24 wrestles with that exact question. He goes back to where God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go, and yet I will judge Pharaoh for not letting my people go. He goes back to that text, raises the question, and then gives answer. Here's where the book, I think, is going. All of the judgment, all the darkness is designed to move us in this direction. And this is where hope lies. All the biblical laments have a sound of trust somewhere. We hear it 
in Lamentations as well. The purpose of suffering is for what end? To highlight the worth and character of God and to stress that hope is found in Him alone. In the midst of desperation, where else do we turn? You alone hold the words of eternal life. In the midst of desperation, where do we turn? I don't understand why you have granted that this pain would come upon me, but this I know. If I have have any help, if I have any salvation, it will come from you because all things come from your hand, including life and health and healing and hope. We need a God who is this big. Otherwise, we don't have certain, certain hope for tomorrow. God is full of love and faithfulness, and this book is confident in that. He is always faithful, not only to curse, but also to bless. And the psalmist is confident, holding fast to a God who is in the depths of his character for blessing. Yahweh descended in the cloud. He stood with him there, with Moses, proclaimed the name of Yahweh, Exodus 34, 5-7. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh. He's going to proclaim the name. What's in the character of God? A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it. It's bowed down within me. But in the moment of that desperation, this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Hear Him preaching to Himself. They are new every morning. And then as He's talking to Himself, all of a sudden He just bursts forth. See how He's talking about God in third person. And then He bursts forth into praise. Great is Your faithfulness. Let Your preaching to Yourself in the midst of lament move You in that direction. Great is your faithfulness. And just gain deep confidence in that. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I, have, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait to the soul who seeks Him. He just continues on. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes it. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. There's the the absolute deep-seated trust in his soul. But though he cause grief, he doesn't deny that God is the ultimate causer of his pain. But he's also absolutely confident that he will also be the absolute causer of his salvation. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not, ESV says, willingly afflict. I don't think that's helpful because God does it willingly. Very literally it says, he doesn't afflict from his heart. Which suggests to me there's different layers of God's will. And at the very core of him is not a passion for affliction. He has to will things like he wills to crush his son at the cross. It was God's will to crush him. 
He has to will that, but, but that's not at the core of his being. There's something more central at the core of his being that's driving him to ordain a world where orphans exist, where brokenness happens, where jobs are lost. He ordains a world like this for some greater end, and it's not at the core of his being to put you and I in the middle of pain. So it says, He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord is commanded? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? They're both coming from Him. That means at one level He wills them all, but at the core of His being is not curse, it's blessing. And blessing always overcomes. And one day what's at the core of His being will only be what we experience if we are in Him. I'm going to hop over that slide as well. Here's how the book ends. God reigns and will ultimately redeem His people. For the Lord will not cast off forever. If you're feeling the weight of past sin, that's what this book is about in particular. It's not just random discipline. It's weight consequences of past sin. Broken marriage. Lack of integrity. And you've experienced consequence. The Lord will not cast off forever, says the lamenter. But though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. If you are with God and He is with you, if Jesus has borne the ultimate curse to which these curses pointed to for you and you are trusting Him, then you have a God who's 100% for you. And though He leads you through the valley of the shadow of death, He will also lead you to the green pastures. And He will be the provider and He will be the protector. And the lamenter is deeply confident in that. But His confidence is like ours. When the darkness gets thick and extended, he questions. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished, says God. He will keep you in in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. God will judge those who have hurt you. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And that actually serves as fuel for us to respond in love rather than hate to those who have hurt us in Romans 12. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? I'm absolutely confident in your sovereign reign. I'm praying that your reign would come on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't appear that all things are subjected underneath the feet of Jesus right now. But I know that they are, and I want to rest in that. God, why this, ha- why this long? Why this hard? Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. You reign. Have You rejected us? Do You remain exceedingly angry with us? That's how the book ends. Just look. That's the very last verse of the book. Verse 19, You reign, O Lord. Verse 22, Renew us unless you have utterly rejected us. 
What book comes after Lamentations in Jesus' Bible? Exactly, the book of Daniel. Lamentations ends declaring the absolute reign of God and yet honestly questioning, God, have you forgotten me? And then we get the book of Daniel. All of Jeremiah's cohorts, any of them that are still left, are now in Babylon. And that's where our story left off at the end of Kings. And then we had these extended commentary sections. We'll we'll start there next week. But I want you to see that in the flow of Jesus' Bible, the question is raised, have you utterly rejected us? And the answer is loud and clear, no. For example, there were four guys that God took from Jerusalem all the way up to Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 1, we learn that He raises them up to the highest level of the land. He gets all these visions. The the lead one of those guys, his name is Dan. He gets all these visions, these dreams. And what does he dream of? The absolute reign of God over all things. Lest we think that God has forgotten, the flow of the whole story is declaring no way. And the vision of the Messiah that we're going to see in the next two weeks, Lord willing, walking through the book of Daniel, is magnificent. The hope is deeply rooted that God, for a people that feel like He's forgotten them, they can rest confident that He hasn't. They were in this weird age of God's made great promises, but there hasn't been the fulfillment. We are in this weird age of God having made great promises, having acted in the suffering servant, and yet having not brought complete fulfillment. All of it accomplished, but not all of it realized. And the same hope that God was giving to those Old Testament saints can be our hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are fresh every dawn. Great is your faithfulness. Father, I ask that you would be honored through us. Be our help. Brokenness is real. Consequences of sin are real. But Christ has taken the curse. And in that we rest. Oh, we celebrate what he has accomplished for us. Our guilt was only compounded in the destruction of Jerusalem. As Gentiles, knowing that Israel was the means of our hope, the instrument through which blessing was to come, we celebrate that Jesus as Israel's representative and as the one who overcomes Adam's sin, is now reigning over all, the Son of God in power. And He's for us. So heighten our hope in the midst of our own despondency. Thank You that You are Savior, You are Sovereign, and You are Satisfier. Be all three for these folks today. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. 
For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.